Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, Look Who's Driving the Bus Now. As noted in a previous episode, it's difficult in recounting church history to follow a straight narrative timeline. The expansion of the faith into different regions means many storylines. So it's necessary to do a certain amount of backtracking as we follow the spread of the gospel from region to region. The problem with that, though, in an audio series, well, it can be confusing as we bounce back and forth in time. We've already followed Christianity's expansion to the Far East and went from the 4th through the 6th centuries, then did a quick little jaunt all the way to the 17th. Then, in the next episode, we're back in Italy, talking about the 3rd century. This week's episode is a case in point. We're going to take a look at two interesting and important individuals in the history, not just of the faith, but of the world. It's a couple of men that we've already looked at, Bishop Ambrose of Milan and the Emperor Theodosius I. The reason we're considering these two is because their relationship was instrumental in setting the tie between church and state that becomes one of the defining realities of Europe in the Middle Ages. I know that some of this is a repeat of earlier material, but please hang with me because we need to consider the background of the players here. Ambrose was born into the powerful Roman family of Aurelius about 340 in the German city of Trier, which served at that time as the capital of the Roman province of Gaul. Both his parents were Christians. His father held the important position of Praetorian prefect. His mother was a woman of great intellect and virtue. His father died while he was still young, and as was typical with wealthy Romans of the time, Ambrose followed his father into the political arena. He was educated in Rome, where he studied law, literature, and as we'd expect of someone going into politics, rhetoric. In 372, he was made the governor of the region of Liguria, its capital being Milan, the second capital of Italy after Rome. In fact, in the later 4th century, Milan was the new imperial capital. The Western emperors had come to deem Rome as both in need of major repairs and too far removed from where all the action was. For decades, the emperors in Rome were just too distant from the constant campaigns against the Germanic tribes. They wanted to be closer to the action, and so imperial headquarters shifted to Milan. Not long after he became governor, the famous controversy between Arians and Catholics heated up. In 374, the Arian bishop of Milan, Auxentius, died. Of course, the Arians expected an Arian would be named to replace him, but the Catholics saw this as an opportunity to install one of their own. The ensuing controversy threatened to destroy the peace of the city, so Governor Ambrose attended the church meeting called to appoint a new bishop. He thought that his presence as the chief civil magistrate would forestall rioting. Imagine that. The Christians had a reputation for getting unruly when they didn't get their way. Sounds like Los Angeles when the Lakers win. Yep, those Christians in Milan, running amok in the streets, overturning chariots, and looting street vendors selling fish tacos. <laughs> Shameful. Anyway, Ambrose attended the election, hoping that his presence would remind the crowd that rioting would be forcefully suppressed. He gave a speech to those gathered about the need to show restraint and that violence would dishonor God. His message was so reasonable, his tone so honorable, that when it came time to nominate candidates for the bishop's chair, a voice called out, Ambrose for bishop. There was a brief silence, then another voice said, Yes, Ambrose. Soon, a whole chorus was chanting, Ambrose for Bishop, Bishop Ambrose. The governor was known to be Catholic in belief, but had always shown the Arians respect in his dealings with them. 
They saw the way that the political winds were blowing and knew that in a straight vote, a Catholic bishop was sure to be elected. They realized Ambrose, though of the other theological camp, well, it wouldn't be a bad choice. And so they added their voices to the call for his investiture as the Bishop of Milan. At first, Ambrose vehemently refused. He was a politician, not a religious leader. He knew that he was in no way prepared to lead the church. He hadn't even baptized yet and had no formal training in theology. Well, none of this mattered to the crowd who'd not take his refusal as the last word. They said he was bishop, whether he liked it or not. He fled to a colleague's house to hide. His host then received a letter from the emperor Gratian saying that it was entirely proper for a civil government to appoint qualified individuals to church leadership positions since the church served an important role in providing social stability. If there were people serving in the political realm who'd be more effective in the religious sphere, then by all means, let them transfer to the church. Ambrose's friend showed him the letter and tried to reason with him, but Ambrose refused to budge. So the friend went to church officials and told them where Ambrose was hiding. When they showed up at the door, intent on seeing him take the seat they'd given him, he relented. Within a week, he was baptized, ordained, and consecrated as Bishop of Milan. He immediately adopted the ascetic lifestyle shared by the monks. He appointed relief for the poor, donated all of his land, and committed the care of his family to his brother. Once Ambrose became bishop, the religious toleration that had marked his posture as a political figure went right out the window. A bishop must defend the faith against error. So Ambrose took the Arians to task. He wrote several works against them and limited their access to church life in Milan which at the time was arguably the most influential church in the West since Milan was now the seat of imperial power. In response to Ambrose's moves to squelch them, the Arians appealed to high-level leaders in both the civil and religious spheres at both sides of the empire. The Western Emperor Gratian was Catholic, while his younger successor and Augustus, Valentinian II, was an Arian. Ambrose tried, but was unsuccessful in swaying Valentinian to the Nicene Catholic position. The Arian leaders felt there was enough of them in positions of influence that if they held a council, they might be able to win the day for Arianism and ask the emperor for permission to hold one. Of course, they hid their real motive from Gratian, who thought that a council during his reign a great idea and consented. Ambrose knew the real reason for the council and urged Gratian to stack the meeting with Western pro-Nicene Catholic bishops. And the council held the next year in 381 Aquileia, Ambrose was elected to preside and the leading Arian bishops dropped out. They were then deposed by the council. This wasn't the end of troubles with the Arians, however. Valentinian's mother, the dynamic Justina, knew the Arians were well represented among the generals and got them to rally behind her son. They demanded two churches to hold Arian services in, a basilica in Milan, the other in a suburb. Saying no to the emperor and his mother is usually not so good for one's health, and most students of history would assume that this would be the end not only of Ambrose's career, but his life. But that's not the way this story ends. When Ambrose denied the Arian demands, he was summoned to appear before a hastily convened court to answer for himself. His defense of the Nicene position and the necessity as bishop to defend the faith was so eloquent, <laughs> the judges sat amazed. They realized there was nothing they could do to censure him without setting themselves in opposition to the truth and risking another riot. They released him and affirmed his right to forbid the use of churches by the Arians. The next day, as he performed services in the Basilica, the governor of Milan tried to persuade him to compromise and give up the church in the suburb for use by the emperor and his mother. 
After all, Ambrose had made his point, and his concession now would be seen as an act of grace, an act of goodwill. It's precisely the kind of thing that Ambrose would have urged when he was governor. But as bishop, well, it was a no-go. The governor wasn't accustomed to being denied and gave orders that both churches were to be turned over to the Arians for their use at Easter. Instead of being cowed, Bishop Ambrose declared, quote, If you demand my person, I'm ready to submit. Carry me to death or to prison, I will not resist, but I will never betray the Church of Christ. I will not call upon the people to support me. I will die at the foot of the altar rather than desert it. The rioting of the people I will not encourage, but God alone can appease it, unquote. Ambrose and his congregation then barricaded themselves inside the church in a kind of religious filibuster. When Valentinian and his mother Justina realized the only way to gain access was to forcefully evict them and how violently the people of Milan were likely to react, the order was rescinded. Trained in rhetoric and law and well-versed in the Greek classics, Ambrose was known as a learned scholar, familiar with both Christian and pagan sources. His sermons were marked by references to the great thinkers, not only of the past, but of his own day. When he was elected bishop, he embarked on a kind of crash course in theology. His teacher was an elder from Rome named Simplician. His knowledge of Greek, rare in the West, allowed him to study the New Testament in its original language. He also learned Hebrew so he could deepen his understanding of the Old Testament. He quickly gained a reputation as an excellent preacher. As noted in a previous episode, it was under his ministry that the brilliant Augustine of Hippo was converted. Prior to moving to Milan, Augustine was unimpressed by the quality of Christian scholarship. To be blunt, he thought the Christians were for the most part an uneducated rabble. Ambrose shattered that opinion. Augustine found himself drawn to his sermons and sat rapt as he heard the gospel explained. Ambrose's sermons often promoted an ascetic lifestyle. He was so persuasive that several noble families forbade their daughters listening to him, fearing that they would choose celibacy over marriage. Since marrying off a daughter to another noble family was a way to advance socially, they feared, they feared their girls would become nuns and thwart their plans. Ambrose introduced, or should I say reintroduced, congregational singing to church services. Not afraid to innovate, when he included Eastern melodies in the hymns that he wrote, and they proved to be wildly popular, some accused him of casting a spell on the people of Milan. Due to Ambrose, hymn singing became an important part of the liturgy of the Western Church. Ambrose's most important contribution was in the area of church-state relations. He contended not with just one, but three emperors, and prevailed in each encounter. His relationship with Theodosius, the first emperor to make Rome a Christian state, is the best known. And the tale is one of those moments in history that would make a great miniseries. In 388, the local bishop and several monks led a mob in the Mesopotamian city of Kalinicum to destroy the city's synagogue. Now, why they chose to do this isn't clear. But there was much ill will between Christians and Jews because the later had been one of the main informants on Christians during the persecutions of the previous century. Now that the Christians were buddied up to civil power, it didn't take much to ignite a little payback, even though it was utterly contrary to the love that Jesus called his followers to show. Be that as it may, the Emperor Theodosius ordered the rebuilding of the synagogue at the expense of the rioters, including their bishop. When Ambrose heard of the decision, he immediately shot off a fierce protest. The glory of God was at stake, and so he couldn't remain silent. He wrote, quote, Shall a bishop be compelled to re-erect a synagogue? Can he do this thing that ought not be done? 
If he obeys the emperor, he'd become a traitor to his faith. If he disobeys the emperor, he becomes a martyr. What real wrong is there, after all, in destroying a synagogue, a home of perfidy, a home of impiety, in which Christ is daily blasphemed? Unquote. Ambrose went on to say that he was no less guilty than the bishop of Clinicum, since he'd made no secret of his wish that all synagogues be destroyed, that no such places of blasphemy be allowed to exist. In a surprise move, Theodosius revoked his earlier decision. The Christians didn't have to rebuild the synagogue that they destroyed. Well, you might imagine what message that sent. It was open season on Jews and their meeting places. All this makes Ambrose appear a rabid anti-Semite. It's confusing then to read of his high regard for their moral purity and devotion to learning. So ends round one in the wrestling match between the Bishop of Milan and the Emperor Theodosius. Before we look at round two, let's take a closer look at Theodosius. Blonde and elegant, Theodosius began his imperial career the usual way of emperors in this era. He was born in northwest Spain to a father who was a talented military commander. Theodosius learned his military lessons by campaigning with his father's staff in Britain. After being crowned emperor in the east in 379, he battled the ever-troubling Germanic tribes in the north. The incessant war did little but wear out both sides, so Theodosius offered the tribes an option. In exchange for land and supplies, Germans would provide soldiers for the legions. These Germans would serve under a Roman banner and Roman generals. It was a novel idea for the time, an arrangement that later emperors increasingly depended on. To fund this expanded army, Theodosius raised taxes to a new high. His enforcement of the collection of these new taxes was carried out harshly. Any official neglecting to collect was flogged. During a serious illness early in his reign, Theodosius was baptized. In 380, he proclaimed himself a Nicene Christian and called a council at Constantinople to put an end to the Arian heresy. Having won that victory, Theodosius then tried to get his choice for the Patriarch of Constantinople approved, but the bishops demanded he appoint someone from their list. They prevailed. It was the first of several instances where Theodosius yielded to church leaders. And this brings us to round two between Theodosius and Ambrose. Chariot racing was the big sport of the Greco-Roman world for hundreds of years. Merge modern baseball, basketball, football, and soccer into a single sport, and you get the idea of just how huge chariot racing was. Many of the larger cities had four to six teams, designated by a color. These teams often represented a neighborhood or a social class, and so rivalries were fiercely sectarian. Fans formed clubs around their teams and attacked each other. A band of thugs for the Reds might rampage through the purple neighborhood, leading to a riot of retribution a couple of days later. The point is, supporters were fanatically loyal to their team. In 390, local authorities imprisoned a charioteer in Thessalonica for homosexual rape. This charioteer happened to be one of the city's favorites, and riots broke out when the governor refused to release him. That governor and several of his staff were killed, the charioter busted out of jail by his fans. Thessalonica was no out-of-the-way village. It was a major city, and the riot couldn't go without being answered. The emperor needed to do something, but the something that he did was all wrong. He announced another chariot race, but when the crowd arrived, the gates to the arena were locked, and they were massacred by imperial troops. In a three-hour brawl, 7,000 of them were executed. Later records show that after the initial order was sent by Theodosius with his plan, 
he realized it was a grave injustice and sent another message to rescind the first, but it got there too late. Many across the empire were stunned at the news of the massacre. Bishop Ambrose was horrified. He shot off another angry letter to Theodosius demanding repentance. He wrote, quote, I exhort, I beg, I entreat, I admonish you, because it is grief to me that the perishing of so many innocent is no grief to you. And now I call on you to repent, unquote. Then Ambrose did something that proved the turning point in state church affairs. When Theodosius visited Milan and attended a church service, he expected Bishop Ambrose to serve him communion. Ambrose refused. He said that until Theodosius repented for what he'd done at Thessalonica, no elements would cross his lips. Now remember, it was believed that the celebration of communion was essential for maintaining salvation. It renewed and refreshed God's grace. So, barring the emperor from communion put his soul at risk. So, when Theodosius professed repentance, Ambrose, in effect, replied, Hold on, pal, not so fast. Your repentance must be marked by penance and a very public version of it. He told Theodosius to set aside his royal garments, put on a simple shroud, and publicly plead for God's mercy where any and everyone could see and hear him. There's some debate as to how long this went on, but one source said that it lasted eight months before Ambrose finally relented and consented to serve the emperor communion. As stated, Theodosius's capitulation to Ambrose marks a major turning point in church-state relations. The bishop's treatment of the emperor introduced the medieval concept of a Christian emperor as a dutiful son of the church serving under orders from Christ. For the next thousand years, Secular and religious rulers struggled to determine who was sovereign in the various spheres of life. Lest the previous events I've just shared make Ambrose and Theodosius appear as rivals, understand that the Bishop of Milan was in fact the emperor's friend, confidant, and counselor in both religious and political matters. Theodosius is supposed to have said, quote, I know no bishop worthy of the title except Ambrose, unquote. And when the emperor died, Ambrose was at his side. Two years after the showdown, Ambrose himself fell ill. His impending death caused far more concern on the part of the people than the passing of a dozen emperors. One wrote, quote, When Ambrose dies, we shall see the ruin of Italy. Unquote. On the eve of Easter in 397, the man who had been Bishop of Milan for 23 years finally closed his eyes for the last time. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.